Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from Tuesia on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Mariam Chihab. What does Walid Ali's gold logie mean for diversity in the media? And why has it taken so long for this supposed turning point in Australian culture to happen? And it seems newspapers keep evolving in this digital landscape. Fairfax is considering having weekend-only papers, while the New York Times is sending their readers ingredients to recipes featured in their publication. So what do papers need to do to survive? Joining me in the studio is Sunil Badami, ABC broadcaster, writer and academic. Welcome, Sunil. Great to be here. Also in this studio is Monica Tan, Deputy Culture Editor of Guardian Australia. Welcome. Thanks. And joining us in the studio as well is Osman Faruqi, freelance journalist and co-founder of Metapol. Welcome. G'day, thank you. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us through Twitter. You can find us at at fourthestateau or letters, no numbers. As you've no doubt heard, Walid Ali took out the gold logie this week for his work on the project. It was the first time someone from a non-white background won the award since the logie started in 1960. Ali dedicated his speech to Dimitri, Mustafa and all other people with unpronounceable names like Walid and also jokingly referenced the criticism of his nomination, asking people not to adjust their sets. There's been a lot of commentary his win could lead to better representation of non-white Australians in the media. Monica, how big of a deal was this win? I think it's a massive deal. I mean, the Logies are actually voted by the general public. So it's not like the industry kind of colluded and say, hey, we got to give ourselves a pat on the back because we finally had like a Muslim guy on a, on like commercial television. Um, it was actually the public who said, hey, we really like this guy, um, whether it's because he's a person of colour, whether it's despite it, it doesn't really matter. But they kind of, yeah, they I think they showed the industry um, that Channel 10 made the right decision when, when they hired um, Waleed Ali. Sunil, what do you think? A big deal? I think it's a big deal, if only for the fact, as I mentioned in my article in Common is Free in The Guardian this Monday about Waleed's win, that after years of forgettable entertainment, celebrity reporters and soap opera stars, we have someone with intelligence and uh, who's articulate, who has not only engaged with the issues that really matter to ordinary Australians, but has driven and shaped the debate in a way that allows us to feel that there are more views, not just because he is a non-white person, but because even more rarely, he's an intelligent person on commercial TV. Wow. It's a total first on so many levels. (laughs) Osman, is is Waleed's win anything more than a window dressing for the media? Could it change anything? I think what his win demonstrated was, you know, the the kind of argument as to why we don't see more diverse people on Australian TV is because audience don't want to accept it. But as Monica pointed out, the award that he won, the Gold Logie, is voted on by the public and the public watched the project in droves. But interestingly, what we saw when he was nominated was this idea that, you know, we saw TV executives, we saw media columnists attack his nomination and effectively have a go at him and say that, you know, he doesn't do anything serious. But the fact that they didn't, uh, you know, attack his co-host, Carrie Bickmore, when she was nominated for the same award last year and was nominated again this year, kind of did highlight to me that what they were concerned about was a guy that didn't fit their mould of what the media industry mm. looks like was nominated. So I think we've kind of got this situation now where audiences clearly have no problem with there being ethnic people on TV and, and watching them and voting for them in the Logies, but it doesn't seem like the TV industry and the entertainment industry more generally has kind of caught up to modern day Australia. You know what I think is really interesting is the fact that most Australians, as evidenced in the most recent 
recent census ABS statistics, over 53% of Australians are born overseas or have parents born overseas. And if my family is any indication, my wife is Anglo, my children, what are they? They're both Anglo, they're both Indian in terms of heritage, but they're wholly Australian. And if you go to Parramatta or you go to Sunshine in Melbourne, you will see the reality of Australian multiculturalism. It's not about performances of ethnic authenticity. It's about people. And I think that's the most telling thing. I think Waleed's nomination and his win did raise important questions in a discussion we do have to have and we rarely do because unfortunately given the prevalence of white people on TV and in the media it's not one that's often had but even though it is a discussion we have to have I think it's also a discussion I hope we don't have to have someday soon. Is that what you alluded to in your Guardian article? Yes definitely I mean I think the most dangerous thing would be to suggest that Waleed is some kind of representative or epitome of non-whiteness. It's so diverse, just Mm. as whiteness is. I mean, for anyone to suggest that Waleed now must become some kind of spokesperson for non-white people is as ludicrous as suggesting that Corey Bernardi is a spokesperson for white people. You you had that great, um, you included that joke by Aziz Ansari, Mm. who basically said, well, uh, could you repeat it again? What did he say? So Aziz Ansari has this bit where he says, you know, people used to say to him when he was doing Paris for Parks and Recreation, wow, you must be stoked about this slumdog millionaire winning all the Academy Awards. (laughs) And he says, well, you know, I I wasn't involved in it. I don't know anyone involved in it. I look like people who were in it. (laughs) But it got me thinking, wow. White people must be totally stoked every time they watch Jaws. They go, wow, that's us. The Untouchables, that's us. Wall Street, that's us. It's like every movie except for Waiting to Exhale and Monsoon Wedding is us. They must be stoked all the time. I should add at this point, yes, I have seen Master of None, but that's as far as I'll comment on it today. Thank you. Yeah, you know, like I think we'll be able to tell we as people of colour have truly arrived is when we see really untalented people of colour like on <laughs> commercial television, you know, because it basically took like an incredibly witty, funny, erudite guy who happened to be a person of colour to kind of break through. Um, it took that to kind of make it happen. But the day that we get lots of like B-grade kind of crappy home and away style actors and, and you know, reality show stars, that's, I'm going to be just happy imagine, then. just imagine the non-white Richard Wilkins. Yeah, the barriers we will <laughs> exactly. have smashed through <laughs> exactly. when we have that kind of non-white inanity, but it's non-white. <laughs> Monica has the focus on Waleed's ethnicity and religion overshadowed the reason for his win, his popularity, popularity and skill as a broadcaster. I mean, no. I think that everybody its everybody always talks about how great it is, how great he is. And the fact of the matter is we need to have the diversity discussions. Like, it, it, it just simply needs to happen. I can't believe it hasn't happened earlier. I mean, America was, was having these discussions like 20 years ago and their TV and film industry looks completely different to ours because of that. So, yeah, you know, look at those Oscars this year. Yeah, well, I mean, okay... Not to say that there aren't any problems over there, but they're still way ahead of us. But you know what? When I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, the ABC's most popular show on a Saturday night after Countdown was the black and white minstrel show that ran on repeats in Australia until 1983. We had Kingswood Country. We had Mind Your Language, Love Thy Neighbour, where terms like nignog and honky and coon were thrown about as comedy. So I think, if anything, of course we have to change. I don't know why we're still having this discussion, but the fact that it has happened, and it's happened from a grassroots level, just shows how far we've come. We may have a way to go, but... 
Let's face it, we have come a long way since those, well, dark days. Speaking of ABC, Osman, mm. um, two ABC bosses have recently flagged the issue of diversity in the media. Um, could this language of diversity lead to pigeonholing, though, um, based on what type of diverse you are? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I mean, I've been pretty critical of the ABC in particular for its failure to act on diversity. I recently did the most boring thing I've ever done in my life and go through 20 years of ABC annual reports. Um, the ABC, to its credit, does actually uh, look at its staff and survey them and ask them whether they're from a non-English speaking background. And the bad news is that there's actually fewer non-English speaking background employees of the ABC now than there were in 1993. And we saw a little bit of an, an uptick in the early 2000s, but we've now gone down since 2013. So I was a bit frustrated for Mark Scott, the former managing director of the ABC, to come out at the end of his term and say, we need to do more on this. Well, I mean, he was in charge for 10 years and <laughs> he didn't really do a lot. Um, I think the ABC needs to grapple with the issue and needs to do it a lot quicker than they're hinting at so far. So the BBC... Similarly, like the ABC, they do a survey of their staff, and they're actually pretty broadly representative of the British population. But despite that, they've committed to targets, both in terms of on-air and off-air staff and, and quotas in that regard. And they're saying that by 2020, they want to hit those quotas. The ABC, 11% of its workforce are from non-English-speaking backgrounds. That compares to a figure of about 20% of the Australian population. So they're, they're effectively undervaluing or underrepresenting non-English speaking people by a factor of 50%. They're, they're not even discussing quotas. It's still very vague stuff and creating diversity action groups in different sections. I don't see any reason why the ABC shouldn't immediately commit to quotas to reflect that issue. But having said that, Oz, I mean, the idea of a quota is something that kind of concerns me because I would like to think that I was hired by the ABC and where I work as a casual presenter in a number of arms of the AB, of ABC radio. I'd like to think that they employed me because of who I was mm. rather than of what I represented or what diversity targets my presence might hit. So a big thing I think is being very careful in any discussion about diversity in regards to simply defining people by one aspect of their identity. As people, non-white people, we are totally defined by the one thing people can see. And I, especially being on radio, given that you can't see me, I would hope that it was, again, the things I said rather than the fact that I came from a particular background that determined whether I was going to be able to say those things. Monica? I don't completely agree with you on the fact that, um, you know, I've I've talked to media bosses before in other countries. I won't name who, but basically they said they used to have kind of an audience of maybe 80% men. As soon as they kind of made the decision to hire a whole bunch of women, they suddenly saw their female audience, a, a, a massive female audience come out of nowhere. So I think the fact of the matter is, is that we, we kind of divide things um, between, we kind of say, oh, it's all about quality. But what does quality really mean? Like, Diversity can be a form of quality because basically someone from a diverse background brings to the table a whole bunch of experiences mm. that, you know, a, a straight white man simply doesn't have. So it's very hard. I think it's very hard when we kind of we try and do we try and be blind and we go, well, we're just looking for someone who's really smart and funny and, and so on and so on. But no, actually. It, it does need to be on paper and it does need to be a number where you make a, a strong commitment to something like diversity because it's actually going to add value to your organisation. It's actually, it's a form of talent. 
um, the the views that a diverse like a person from whether it's the you know L- from the LGBTIQ community, whether they're a mm. disabled person, whether they're a woman, so on and so on. Look, I think ideally we we shouldn't need quotas, but if mm. the issue is that if an organisation like the ABC, which proudly calls itself the national broadcaster, has for so long underrepresented a big cohort of people, to me that suggests that there is some kind of structural issue there that needs to be looked at. I mean, there's another way of resolving it. The BBC is also moving towards completely anonymised interviews and job application processes. So we do know that there are studies that show that if you've got a name from a non- non-English, non-Anglo background, um, particularly Asian names and Middle Eastern names... You're less likely to get a job interview, um, even if you've got exactly the same qualifications. And the BBC wants to rectify that problem by taking people's names off job interviews. Again, if the ABC has an issue of hiring people from non-English speaking backgrounds, that's another step they could look at to try and rectify those diversity problems. I mean, I'm so glad to be hired because I'm an Asian female. Like, I actually have no problem with that whatsoever. I mean, it is interesting. The ABC does seem to bend itself bend over backwards to include conservative views, even if those views as expressed by people like Tim Wilson are complete nonsense. <laughs> I like how you but, slipped that into this discussion. But I think it is interesting when you talk about that balance and the representation of Australia that it should take more efforts mm. to include those views of people who have been marginalised in the greater representation in the media. Because the media, after all, whatever you want to say, the media is still the greatest paradigm to drive debate and to shape opinion, especially today. So it is interesting. I think, you know, you do both raise very good points in terms of, I guess, allowing for those other perspectives to be heard. And if if they're going to let you know, Tim Wilson and the like to be on the, on TV, then they should allow more people like us as well yeah. with well, our different sure. experiences. Totally, totally, yeah. But at least they're making an effort because you don't hear this conversation at Channel 9. No. Yeah, yeah. Look, and commercial TV is, actually, is far worse. But I mean, I... Yeah, and like you're right, the ABC is talking about it. I mean, I just don't I don't think that, I'm not saying that you were saying this, but I don't think that the fact that commercial TV is even whiter than the ABC is an excuse for them to kind of sit on their, sit on their thumbs. Hey, up. can I just add that I met, so, you know, with commercial television, right, reality show has actually been a great bastion for ethnic people. Totally, yeah. Um, like, like cooking shows. Like, let's face yeah. it, Australian, like the Australian cuisine, Australian cuisine would be nothing without us, without yeah. people of colour. Food is so, our thing. Yeah. But have you noticed that on the romantic sh- dating show, uh, reality shows like The Bachelor, Osman actually wrote a great piece for us once, didn't you? Did you? No, it wasn't. No. Oh, my God, <laughs> I did. You confused me with another brown person. I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> no. <laughs> You, okay, I cannot erase this from, from the public record because it's live, isn't it? Actually, to be, I actually don't think it was a brown person. So you're you're in the clear. It was it was a, I know who it was, and it wasn't no, a brown we person. Had, anyway, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. Point being that I recently met one of the producers from the Bachelor, the Bachelor, and I said to her, I can't believe the show didn't have a man of color on it as a single man of color as a contestant, and she said. That they just hadn't even thought about that. Wait, wow. what about she Blake Garvey? Until I just said it. Blake Garvey is biracial. Okay, he, he, he's like he's half. But on the on the news. I show, mean, I don't know that we need to kind of. We, yeah, you're Blake right. Garvey okay, was on fine. the first series okay. or the second the, series, the and he was biracial, series. and his father was was black. Okay, the se- you're right. I, 
This one didn't the, go well for you. The, this the, no. <laughs> Wrong author. Forgot about that guy. Can we please just go back and Can we delete this again? bit? Oh, yeah. Okay, look, the second series, the most recent series, didn't have a man on colour on it. Yeah, but, uh, okay, I get that. But I also note that on The Bachelor, they did have a woman of colour. She did get knocked out early, but I can't... I'm not saying that's necessarily a question of racism. It just might be a personal preference, you know? I, I But it is interesting that you say that. I, I think there is that kind of idea that, you know non-white people have to kind of perform this thing where they can cook curry or they can do kung fu or whatever, you know, that they have even that one aspect of their identity is further caricatured on the basis of one demonstration of what white people kind of see as the defining characteristic of that race. Mm. So yeah, it is interesting, although I remember that Andrew Bolt did write a long blog post unusual for him about um, Kumar, one of the contestants on My Kitchen Rules or MasterChef and how great he was and inspiring and what an Australian he was and all that sort of stuff. He ticks all the right boxes for Andrew Bolt. There you go. With the tasty food. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Do you guys think, though, that the Australian public recognises that our majority white media doesn't reflect our reality? Well, you know, you heard from that bachelor producer. She literally hadn't thought about it until I brought it up with her. So, I, you know, and I've talked to other television industry people. A lot of them have said it's a risk. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a gamble to put someone who's not white up. And that is the most beautiful thing about this Logies win. It's like for the first time, we actually have hard evidence. Maybe it isn't a risk. Yeah, I think, I think there's been a few things this year that have demonstrated like that audiences respond positively. And, you know, Benjamin Law's show, The Family Law, that got massive ratings. It was the most watched online thing, I think, so far this year in Australian television. It's been renewed for a second season. Even um, Here Come the Habibs, I think, has been renewed for a second season, even though I'm not really a fan of that show. But those two programs show that you put people from diverse backgrounds on TV, Australians will watch it. And in the instance of Walid Ali, they'll vote for the guy because they think he's, he's a good TV talent. Do you know what I think is interesting is the whole media political echo chamber, you know, as you see on Twitter, but the idea that people, that to assume that people are stupid and to appeal to what you think might be their basest instincts, where is the light on the hill? Where are the golden threads that unite us? Where is the you know, the seeking to inspire us to be more compassionate and to consider other views rather than this kind of simple binary between, you know, um, left and right or black and white or male and female, whatever. And I think, okay, I get it, especially with commercial TV, that it isn't necessarily the most, you know, complex of discourses. But surely Waleed being able to present such thought-provoking and incisive editorials on commercial TV that reach so many more people than, you know, his Radio National show would have ever done certainly suggests that people, you know, the average audience is looking for someone who isn't going to insult their intelligence and is going to maybe even inspire them rather than be bothered with the trivia of, you know, what people are wearing or whatever. Yeah. So, Neil, um, Waleed mentioned a person working in the in the industry had to change his name from Mustafa in order to get work. Um, he talked Although about he, what, he did work on the Habib show, yeah, was, so that's yeah, kind of yeah. ironic, yeah. isn't it, really? The gig that he got was playing like a kind of typical Lebanese guy, I guess, which maybe yeah. highlights some of the other issues. Well, Waleed talked about unpronounceable names in his speech. Are ethnic or un- unpronounceable names still a big hindrance in the newsroom, especially with broadcast? I don't think they are. I mean, I actually did a piece that was aired on Life Matters on Radio 
National yesterday about my own unpronounceable name. And it was really interesting about all the feedback that Radio National got, not only on its Facebook page, but on its website from people with names like Barabara. Or Marjorette. Sorry, I'm not very good with the ethnic names, okay? But, <laughs> hey, none of us. <laughs> but, the, but it was interesting because I think that, you know, when we look at our stories or the stories of anybody in the media or in literature or film, they're particular stories. But what makes them appeal to us is their universality. We're all people who have problems with people giving us trouble over our names. We're all people who feel that maybe sometimes we're not quite Australian enough, whatever that means. And so I think, you know, it, what is really interesting interesting is is that there are lots of different kinds of you know unpronounceable names but the more people become used to them the more people have family or friends with those names well, the less unpronounceable they're going to be. I think what's really interesting is, is that the Prime Minister famously said that none of us can look in the mirror and say that we, I, look like the average Australian. And Waleed's win, reflected back in the popular opinion of those people who voted for him, does just that. There is no average Australian. There's no average Australian name. There are lots of different voices and perspectives that make up Australia. And the only thing that binds us together is the fact that we may, for all our disagreements on various issues, fundamentally agree on what it might mean to be Australian. Whether that means a meat pie or a barn me, I don't know. But at least we can have that discussion, that debate, rather than shutting it down or disregarding it. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Mariam Chihab, and I'm speaking to Sunil Badami, Monica Tan and Osman Faruqi. It looks possible that the daily Sydney Morning Herald newspapers could be a thing of the past. The chief of Fairfax Media, Greg Highwood, has flagged a switch to weekend-only print editions for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Highwood has also suggested the Australian Financial Review may go in the opposite direction by cutting its weekend edition. He's suggested this new publishing model because of because the weekend papers generated the most advertising revenue. Sunil, why would Fairfax seek to preserve weekend papers in particular at the expense of their daily editions? Well, look, I used to have a weekly subscription, to a seven-day subscription to the Sydney Morning Herald, but the fact is, is that I was able to read the news on my phone and by the time the paper got to me, that it was already old news. I think the weekend papers are more full of opinion, so it doesn't really matter, which is why Maurice Schwartz and Black Ink have published the Saturday paper, which is basically 25 pages of editorial and a full-page ad for his wife's gallery. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing is, is that, you know, I, I think about Fairfax ever since young Warwick, you know, basically ran it into the ground. I remember Fred Hilmer writing a book called What the Management Text Didn't Teach Me About Ruining, sorry, Running Fairfax. And it's <laughs> been like that ever since. Peter Carey, the Booker Prize winning Australian author, wrote recent a few years ago after the first round of redundancies that the it didn't make sense to reduce the quality of your product in an effort to try and sell more of it or cut costs. I mean, basically, Fairfax looks like that really sad milk bar that nobody goes into with a few food poisoning scandals with nothing on the shelves. And, you know, you just wanted Coke Zero, but you can't get it because it's not in the fridge and the fridge might not even be turned on. (laughs) But it does also follow on from the recent decision by the UK newspaper, The Independent, to go completely online. And I think there are still problems, especially for online outlets like Guardian Australia and around the world, in the fact that most people do tend to use ad-blocking software so that the adver- advertising revenues are still being pinched on the internet. 
I think the fact is is that ultimately the costs that are involved, especially with redundancies, where a lot of legacy staff are being given huge six-figure payouts just to leave and the rest of the workforce is being casualised on a freelance basis. Freelance, or as I like to call it, unemployment with tax added, means that ultimately the less quality there is in Fairfax, as as subbing goes out to offshore electronic sub-editing and, you know, there is no support for developing really important stories like the Mossack Fonseca expose, I think ultimately it will just become a kind of lifestyle magazine and you'll buy, you know, Spectrum and the domain section to find out what price your house is and maybe get a little bit of editorial with it. Monica, do you think this would be a good move by Fairfax? For sure, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Why do they don't get rid she of it? She would say that at the Guardian, <laughs> wouldn't she? The weekend, what do, no, okay. Look, I always use my dad as kind of a litmus test for you know what Middle Australia is doing because he's kind of like right in the middle. He's not like one of the early adopters. He's not super late as well. And my dad stopped subscribing to the SMH like ten years ago. Yeah, now, like ages ago. So. You know, it, it, it was inevitable and there's always a right time to do it. You can't do it too early because your print's still making money, you, but you don't want to do it too late as well when it's no longer making any money at all. And if this is the right time for them, then so be it. I, th- I think it's it's actually kind of sad the way that management at Fairfax have approached this issue. So obviously this week, the other news from Fairfax has been the 30 forced redundancies that we're still sort of hearing about. But one of the things that I know staff at Fairfax have been really critical of management around is their lack of articulating what is the, the future for Fairfax. And so up until today, basically, Fairfax management had been saying, print is fine. Like, don't worry about it. Print's not going anywhere. <laughs> if you're interested in working in print, stay at Fairfax. And now they've just said, oh, actually, five out of seven of our print issues will never, ever exist again. Maybe in a few months, the weekend print edition won't exist either. So I think if they're going to get rid of print, and like Monica outlined, the fact is, and you know, so did Sunil, people don't read print anymore. Fair enough. But be honest about it and tell your staff about it, because at the end of the day, they're the journalists putting together the news. And you shouldn't treat them like shit. You shouldn't keep them in the dark. And I think management has, has made a big error in the last few months. I mean, what I think is great is Greg Highwood saying a few months ago that we are committed to quality journalism, which is why we're going to sack half our journalists. <laughs> totally. Right? And their entire like literary criticism section. It's really sad. You know, yeah. yeah. And I mean, basically, yeah, I think it's a, re- it's a really sad development because ultimately, you know, okay, Fairfax doesn't have the bottomless pockets of News Limited, which is boosted by its TV assets, right? But what's that going to do for the diversity of opinion in the country, in Australia, which is already dominated by news, which owns most 70% of all the print assets in Australia and dominates, I think, four Mm. or five states and territories with being the only outlet in those places? So... Yeah, I think it's it is a sad day, but really, what is the answer? Nobody seems to know. I know that the Eng- the Scottish writer and analyst Ewan Morris Morrison said a few years ago at the Edinburgh um, Literary Festival that there's a kind of long tail in terms of media creativity, creative, and you know output and production, and it's kind of evidenced by the fact that the Productivity Commission is now saying that um, writers and artists will only be allowed to have a 15 year term on their copyright that expires within their lifetime rather than going 50 years afterwards, which is kind of strange, but it does really devalue that kind of um, creativity and output. And ultimately, really, I mean, do you want Tim Blair to be the only voice you read in, in Australian media? No. Just quickly on our last topic, um, 
Also on the subject of newspapers, the New York Times has announced that its readers will soon have the option of getting recipe ingredients delivered to them. They've partnered up with an online meal business called Sheft to allow readers to choose and order meal kits from recipes published by the paper. Monica, is this a move that makes sense for the New York Times? Um, <laughs> you know, time will tell. I think it's it's a bit of a gimmick and it's kind of cute, but... I sort of don't really like the idea of cooking out of a box. I don't know. What do you guys think? No. I, look, you know what? I don't mind it because I reckon food prices are so high in Sydney at the moment. If you can get one of those big companies to give you the ingredients you need. I worked out on a per meal basis it was cheaper than really? me going it would be cheaper. to the fruit shop. Yes. Huh. But what I think is really interesting is The Guardian, for example, offers master classes, one of which on podcasting is, oh, is taught like, by like Miles that. from like 2SER, <laughs> right? And I think that's an interesting way of diversifying in terms of also lending the authority of The Guardian to these classes that will engage the readership in other ways than simply editorial content. What do you think? <laughs> I just love that. Yeah, like, I think you've mentioned Guardian Australia about four times tonight. So congr- I tip yeah, my hat off to you. He's doing your job for you. That's <laughs> no, awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that definitely... Look, it's it's no it's no secret that absolutely every media company is struggling to kind of stay afloat. The Guardian's one of them, and trying to understand what it is that we can provide beyond news coverage is a really important thing to do. Look, news has always been funded by other things, whether it's classifieds and so on. So, yeah. Well, that's it from us on Forfeit State. Thanks to my guests Sunil Badami, Monica Tan, and Osman Faruqi. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at tuasia.com. My name's Mariam Chihab. You can catch us at the same time next week.